Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Julie Love. I'm your host. Thank you very much for tuning in. Today we are recording episode 88. But before I introduce the guest, I want to introduce my book, which is called A Gift from Adversity. Same title as this podcast, and it's available on Amazon. If you search a gift from adversity by Jury, J-U-R-I, love, you can easily find it. I had published this book in 2020. The subtitle is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. And to be honest, for me to be able to even publish a book and have this podcast is such a big milestone because 20 years ago, there was no way I was able to speak out about my adversity. After I published my book, I got a lot of messages from all over the world sharing the adversities, and I felt very compelled to not only publish my book, but also start a podcast where we can talk about the adversity, but not only about the sad part of adversity, but also tools that people use to overcome and a gift that came from it. So I'm very excited to introduce our guest tonight. Hi, Jeff. Thank you so much for coming in. Hey, Julie. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Awesome. So, Jeff, can you introduce our guest, who you are, where you're coming in from, and then what you do, and if you have a website or social media? Yeah, sure. So I'm Jeff Seo. I'm the founder and head coach of Mind Access Life Coaching. I help unfulfilled millennials create a meaningful life. Um, I'm based in Australia, uh, Perth, Western Australia, to be exact. And I think the last question was social media. Uh, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Mind Access Life Coaching. You can find me on LinkedIn at Jeff Seal. You can find me on Twitter at Jeff Seal. And you can find me on my website, mindaccesslifecoaching.com.au. And you can also find me on TikTok at Mind Access Life Coaching. That's a bit of a mind. Uh, bit of a mouthful but uh, that's where you can find me so uh repeat your website again so i can um... sure mind access life coaching mind access life coaching mm-hmm. mind axis life coaching mind ax is life coaching okay. and then dot au .au, yeah, I'll type it in the chat if that helps. Yeah, sure, that would be great. Um, so, Jeff, um, thank you so much for coming in from Australia. Uh, I've never been to Australia in my life, maybe someday, but I'm mm. originally from Japan, and I had a pimple from New Zealand, and that's how close I could feel. And then I also had worked with a professor from South Australia University, uh, Dr. Jerry uh, Bustin for uh, the nonprofit work that I was doing. So, and if people have some comments and question, this is live recording. So please put on the comment and ask us any question. So Jeff, thank you again for being here. Let's uh, dive into our first question, which is the adversity. So can you tell our audience what was your adversity? Yeah, so even though I work as a life coach and an entrepreneur now, 
Aochi was a drug addict for eight years. Uh, I had a very troubled period in my life between the ages of 17 to 24. Uh, this is not to say I didn't do anything. Um, I was still at university. I have three degrees. Academics has come naturally to me, but my life was hampered in terms of every opportunity that I try to take because I was a drug addict, alcoholic, and perennial party boy. <laughs> so the adversity was overcoming that. The adversity was kind of finding myself onto a route that was good. Like, I mean, I was actually been thinking about this the last couple of days. So this podcast has uh, occurred quite coincidentally is that I was thinking how for eight years, so I've been sober for two years now, right? For eight years before that, I don't really have many memories from my life. I was speaking to uh, my parents because, you know, we're talking about uh, like times that we spent on family trips and things. And there are things that I just don't remember at all. I have no memory of these events because during that period in time, my brain was so destroyed that I have, I have no memories for the majority of eight years. It's like a time gap, a time loop, basically. Well, thank you so much for being vulnerable and sharing this um, experience that you had. Have you, uh, can you please dissect a little bit more? Um, so you mentioned about drug and alcohol addiction um, between the age 17 to 24. What had happened to lead into the age 17 to start using this uh, substance? I suppose um, a big part of it started with wanting to fit in right but more than that um personally i always had a very rebellious streak i always wanted to do things that made me different i guess you could say right i, I was always that person in the room that wanted to push the hardest or you know drink the most or smoke the most whatever it was uh this is not the case anymore but i always felt like the more that i did uh the higher i was in my own self-esteem and this is a lot to do with things like childhood trauma um, has things to do with like, you know, growing up and difficulties, not things that I really dwell upon, but at the time I refused to confront. And the more that I refused to confront the things in my past that were haunting me, the more that they just began to, I guess, feed this addiction because every time that you drink or, you know, you smoke weed or you party and take different party drugs, um, you don't remember these things. You don't feel them because they stop existing. All that matters is the fun that you're having right now. And it's a great escape. And that's how it all led into it is because the more that I began to self-medicate my mind, the more I began to feel free from the burden of the past. But it wasn't the case. It was just an illusion of me running away from it. So, Jeff, what happened um, during the childhood that led you to those kind of mental stage? Yeah, so, you know, during childhood, there was a lot of bullying uh, because, well, growing up, I'm not, so growing up as a half Asian in Australia is hard, especially in the early 2000s, right? Because that's just the climate of the times, right? It's just how it was. And all the way throughout school, being picked on for something that you can't change is one of the worst things that can possibly happen to someone because there are certain things that, you know, if you're picked on, like, for example, if your weight or things like that, these are things that you actually can change in your life. You can modify yourself to a certain degree, but you can't change your race. And this impacted me very heavily throughout my life because 
when you are brought down for the person that you literally are born as constantly, how do you have any self-worth or self-esteem in your own mind? Well, you don't because at the end of the day, it's a complete and utter rejection from everything, right? And that's hard. And that was one of the one of the things that really affected me a lot in my life was feeling like I had no self-worth because of the way in which I was picked on and things. Now, now you can say I can speak about it very easily because it doesn't affect my psychology at all. Like I'm completely cool with it to look back because it's a powerful tool for me to, to understand how things work in life. But at the time, I had no idea how to process it and it was constantly painful. And then there was a difficult home life, which I'm not going to get into, but there was a difficult home life as well difficult time in school and just brought up a very miserable young Jeff. And the only way that he could feel happy and free was if he found ways to distract himself from the pain. And this that I talk about here is something that I work through with a lot of my clients because a lot of the time the pain is so difficult that the only thing that seems reasonable to do is to run away from it. But we cannot keep running. We have to face ourselves. We have to face our demons, so to speak, because that's where we can begin to start living a truly fulfilled life is by overcoming the things that are perceivably holding us back. Thank you so much for sharing that. So I don't know about Australian race um, issues, but I'm Japanese and I grew up in Japan and I got bullied for different reasons. But um, obviously in America, there's black and white and uh, Latino, Asian, um, heavily like, like influencing our interaction and doing and all that stuff, racial flaws. Like, what are the things that you remember that hurt you most when you were getting bullied as an Asian living in Australia? I suppose just being rejected for the fact that I was alive. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if. Like I mentioned before, if you get bullied for things like your weight or your haircut or whatever, these are not great things, but at the end of the day, you can modify that. But you cannot modify your race. Like that is impossible, you know? So when you get victimized and brought down for the person that you're literally born as, um, that that makes you feel pretty bad about yourself. It's like, well, I hate myself, right? I mean, because what else do you change? I mean, like, you know, if you get bullied for different things, you can say, I hate that component of my life. Let's make it better. But if you get picked on for your race, that is literally a direct impact and attack on your absolute sense of self. That is your genetics, right? And what else do you focus your anger at? Well, you can focus your anger on other people, which I'm certain I can't really remember too clearly, but I probably would have at the time. But a lot of it would have been directed at myself, Things like, for example, being born, things, for example, being born in Australia, things, for example, being a certain way or my circumstances in life, it all just turns to a negative loop about myself because, well, I'm the one in the room that is Asian, not other people. But like I mentioned, speaking about this right now is actually enjoyable because to me, these things are empowering because when we go through adversity, it makes us stronger, you know, it makes us better as a result. But the key is to be able to look at it and say, okay, what can I learn from this? Yes, and we will save that tool part for the later on the podcast. But gotcha. I just want to really um, talk about the adversity part. So the bullying part and then maybe not being accepted maybe had 
the root cause of your chunk of um, youth, um, young adulthood addiction. Um, and did you feel when you started that you are accepted for the certain group of people? Like how, how did it like attract you the most, do you think? Yeah, it definitely impacted the decisions that I made because, you know, feeling like I was worthless, it makes you do things that are, I guess, more extreme because you want to see how much more worth you can build to yourself, right? So rather than looking within and resolving the problems that you face and how you perceive yourself, it's like the more that you attain, the more that you have makes you feel better. And, you know, we see this in different ways. Some people chase achievements, which some people chase certain things. To me, in my life at that point, I just wanted to chase a sense of rebellion, to rebel against the very system that had failed me, right? Um, because that's something called the victim mindset. And in that sense, I looked into my past as a source of hatred. And that's why I looked into doing things like drinking, smoking, partying excessively, uh, popping pills every weekend. You know, I did that for a long time. Um, and you naturally gravitate towards people that do the same because, well, you know, <clears throat> When you have certain things that you want to run away from, you will gradually find yourself in a group of people that are also trying to do the same. And no one is a bad person, but it just reflects based on your habits about what's really going on in your internal world. And yeah, I guess that's that's pretty much it. That's that's how it all happened. Is that I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to prove that I was the strongest and had the ability to take on the most. Uh, whether it was drinking or drugs or whatever, I could always consume the most. That was one of the, my biggest things, actually, is that at every party, I would try to consume the most. <clears throat> every session, I'd try to smoke the most. I'd always try to pop the most pills, whatever, because I would always try to, to be the most because I felt like I wasn't enough at the time. Um, and as you can see, I hope you can see the link there of how that early days of not being accepted for who I am made me feel like I wasn't anything, which then made me transition into wanting to make myself feel like I was worth something in that realm of life. And at the time of the addiction in the, maybe at the height of your addiction, was there anybody that had told you that, Hey Jeff, I think you are like out of line or think you're addicted or was it more like self-sabotage that you, don't want to listen to these people or like how was the process like during at the height of your addiction uh well naturally my family was quite worried for me um uh, my family were good though like my immediate family because they never told anyone uh in the extended family of what was going on it was kind of a, a secret thing a secret battle in that sense because we knew that spreading that out would obviously be quite foolish um and bad for everyone to know about so but they were obviously advocating for me to stop. My close childhood friends were advocating for me to stop and get in control of it. But for the most part, I didn't listen to anyone. You know, I was, like I mentioned, I was always the one that wanted to be the most in the room, smoke the most, drink the most. So I would do the most extreme things. Sometimes I wouldn't show up home for a couple of days. Uh, sometimes I'd just disappear. There, there's many things you can do in life, right? I mean, but like, I'd always take it to the next level and I'd never listen. And I, distinctly remember when people would try to confront me about it, I get very aggressive, uh, which is almost bizarre to look back upon. You know, now you're drawing these memories out of my mind. Um, it's, it's quite bizarre to look upon it and see that person because I can't even resonate with that person anymore. But I would be very aggressive, very angry. 
um, whenever I wasn't medicated, right? But when I was medicated, I was the most peaceful, spiritual, happy kind of guy. But without it, I was just, I think I was a misery to be around, to be honest. And you said you kept going for school and then keeping the grades and stuff. How did you manage to do that? Academics to me is one of the things that come very naturally. Um, so throughout this period, I was studying at university, but I want to make it clear that everyone has a different talent. Some people are really good at sports. I'm not that good at it. Some people are really good at singing. I suck at it. For me, I'm really good at academics. <laughs> so when I was at university and doing these things, I would show up to lectures high. You know, I would do exams high. I would do assignments high. It wouldn't even matter to me. It was all the same because academics to me makes sense, right? Studying and retaining and regurgitating information or thinking critically, analytically, these are natural things that are built into me. So when I was doing these things on the side and destroying my own personal life, nothing really suffered in terms of my studies. It did suffer in terms of my jobs though. Like I got fired from pretty much every job that I worked at between the ages of 17 to about 21. Got fired from different restaurants. I got fired from different sales jobs. I got fired consistently because I was just worthless. Uh, I was, was inconsistent. I couldn't show up. Um, but then it, it changed for me. It changed for me at 21 when I started to take that side of my life more seriously. Um, but yeah, that, that's how it all tied in together is that I never really struggled too much with academics. How about relationship mm. with um, women um, partner when you are doing this drugs and alcohol? It was always toxic to an extent, you know, I was always attracted to people that were doing the same behaviors as me, people that were toxic in nature, but the relationships were never deep and meaningful, like how I have now. The relationships were always shallow and based on common interests in terms of like drugs, partying, um, doing activities that did not further our lives. And because of that, they were short-term relationships and they were shallow. I mean, they were not really anything that was meaningful as compared to what I have now with the people around me. Uh, it's completely different. So in America right now, it's such an epidemic, opioid especially, and fentanyl, and then um, the young people die by consuming like the street drugs. And I've had like lost some people that I've known or heard of, and I'm a journalist, so I deal with this a lot. How's it the reality-wise in Australia as far as the death of this um, sometimes hard drugs and then maybe fentanyl, like mixture of those street drugs. It's pretty bad. We just don't talk about it. Uh, drugs are part of the culture in Australia. You you grow up smoking weed in school at the age of like 12. You know, um, you it's so easy to obtain drugs in Australia. Like it's kind of a joke. You can, <laughs> it's very easy to obtain drugs. Um, it's, it's part of the culture, seriously. Like if you, if anyone listening goes on TikTok and types in like Melbourne drug scene or whatever, you'll be able to see interviews of people on the street. Everyone is off the, off the head, basically. Um, it's, it's just the way it is, you know, everyone's partying, everyone's on drugs, all the youth are on drugs. It's, it's, it's normalized here. It's so normalized. Um, it's almost like not doing it makes you stand out a little bit because it's what everybody does because it's just part of our culture. But we don't talk about it because it's that deeply ingrained into our culture. 
How about the law? Is do you get arrested? Yeah, you would. You would if you get caught. But there are not that many police officers in Australia, and on top of it, like I mean, there have been people that I have known, friends and such, that have been arrested, been to prison um, from way back in the day. You know, they they've not had the best run in their lives from selling and things. But at the end of the day, um, most people don't really get caught <laughs> because it's not that hard to. It's pretty hard to get caught. We have a lot of people, and Australian cities are not like American cities that are quite dense. Australian cities are very big, very very big. For example, a city where I live, there's two million people, <clears throat> and our city is massive. Going from one end of the city to the other end of the city takes about two over two hours. But there's only two million people in our city, so you imagine how thinly spread that is. It's it's not that hard. I want to talk a little bit about the cultural difference. So mm -hmm. I grew up in Japan, and there was no IDing for alcohol. And when I came to America, it was very surprising that you had to be 21 years old to consume alcohol, because we all started drinking like at like fifth grade, sixth grade, and we had a vending machine that you can anyone can buy alcohol a vending machine. But I've never seen marijuana. I've never seen hard drugs. But alcohol, yes, all the time. And then even like my family member encouraged me to take alcohol from a young age. I remember throwing up like 80 years old, 90 years old. I, I just, I don't know why, but they encouraged me to drink. And then um, I remember like having a party, like um, we had this different, different shit and the kids are throwing up like sixth grade because we had such an access to alcohol. But again, never seen marijuana. How about, um, you know, I know uh, what's the drinking legal age in Australia? 18. 18. So you started consuming before the legal age? Yeah. Then was it hard to get it or is, was it easy to get it? It's very easy to get um, because if you have friends that are 18, they're just going to buy it for you. So it's it's a very it's not hard to get yeah and it's interesting about the police and then the population in like wide spread the thing is very interesting but um did you come to very like maybe close to death experience doing this drugs and alcohol um at the height of your addiction no, not from. I have had multiple near death experiences, but I have not had one actually related to drugs or alcohol for that matter. I've always, like, I'm, I've, I've always had this ability to consume a lot. And even though it got me very, very far, it, it never took me to the point of like near death. Never, never had to have my stomach pumped, never had to go to the ER, um, never OD'd, that kind of thing. Wow. What was your nearly death experience that's only related? Uh, no, it wasn't related to any of it, but I, I will tell you about it. It's um, I was riding a motorcycle down the road. It was a pitch black road, uh, no lights, and there was a person parked on the other side of the road, uh, on the side of the verge. And I didn't realize, but my motorcycle light at the front may have not been working too well. So as I was driving down the road, I was going around about 70 or 80. Um, they just pulled out, basically in front of me out of nowhere and like i had no time to react 
and I slammed to the side of the car, flew over the top, flipped and like smashed to the ground on the other side. But I still remember that moment because like that moment when you're about to hit, it was just like, you know, when they say your life flashes before your eyes, it, it really does. You really think like, wow, this is like the end. Like there's no comprehension of like what's next. Like it's strange. It's almost like a very peaceful feeling. It's like, well, this is it. <laughs> you know, like that, that's it. It's been a good life. I remember that was one of the thoughts, man. I was like, well, this is it. And then um, surprisingly, I was unscathed from that. I flew over the top, smashed into the ground, and I was I walked away without an injury. Whoa! I I, I know. <laughs> Even to this day, I'm just like, how on earth? <laughs> you know what I mean? But uh, yeah, I I don't know. But that experience itself taught me a lot about the meaning of life, because I realized that we we do take it a certain degree of like, you know, we we get too far caught up in our thoughts and our emotions and things like that when we don't realize how precious life is. Because when you're confronted with the certainty of death it makes you value what you had but also it's a calm acceptance that you know this is this is life you know it's hard to describe i, I, don't, I don't know if you've been through something similar but um it's almost like a really weird like calm acceptance at the end when you feel like it's about you know what i'm saying yeah absolutely so jeff i really appreciate you coming in today and then really speaking out about your addiction, but not only that, but the cause of it and the bullying part of it and being Asian, like my heart breaks for you because I'm a proud Japanese and, you know, I think me being, I, I, I feel like there are two parts to the discrimination, Jeff. So one is female, male gender issue in Japan that I experienced bullying towards female, being Asian female, and then just ability to be just a woman. And then coming to America, that got lessened, but also I've experienced discrimination towards Asian. Um, so it's been a very interesting journey for me. And like you said, you cannot change the race in, you know, you were born as you are, and then um, are you Chinese? Are you like Japanese, like half? You said you're mixed? Mm. So I'm half, half Chinese, half Portuguese. Oh, Portuguese, okay. I'm 100% mm. Japanese, just to be clear. <laughs> well, my kids are Nigerian, Japanese, mixed, being in America. And they've been called brownies. They've been called black monkey negro. They're only six and 12. And they've had some share of um, racial slur, but they gotten like really stronger. But then like, it's so unfair and it's very heartbreaking because I think they're beautiful and like the color of their skin i think they're really beautiful but certain people obviously can't get over the biases and then this prejudice against whatever the color it is it's very unfair i'm sorry to hear your children are going through that um because I, I would have thought that that would have kind of been something that would have stopped in america uh strangely enough after like you know like george floyd and things like that i thought it would have you know kind of stopped because you know, like black culture is such a huge part of American culture, but I guess it hasn't. No, this is the thing, you know. No. Sorry, 
So we got the swimming pool and then, oh, what are you two brownies doing here? What? Yeah, exactly. So I said, I pay rent. <laughs> and then some of the things that um, yeah, people said to my children are very, very heartbreaking. And then some people say, for instance, I just want to share it with you and our audience that I'm a articles and then people will look at me and then they will say can you speak english so i'm like yes i can <laughs> so i completely understand that i look like this in america so obviously like people don't think i'm intelligent enough so i always tell my black fans like you guys get discriminated by the color of your skin but i get discriminated by the intelligence of you know whatever it's just like it's interesting so yeah there, there are so many ways that people like you know will discriminate you wherever you go i think it's honestly something that we can't stop i think it is because racism is so deeply intertwined into well human history right i mean if you look at all the conflicts throughout history they all involve race so it's it's so deeply intertwined that it's it's hard. It's hard because we all. It, it's I think it's almost bizarre to not accept someone based on how they looked, um, but unless you've been shown otherwise, it's almost like an innate thing that's you know in us from a young age. And I hate the fact that it even exists. It's something that we really can't get in control of. We can pay, make people more aware. The more educated people are about how it is, and the more educated people are about realizing that we're all the same race, it becomes less powerful like in australia right now racism isn't as bad as it was uh in the early 2000s when i was a kid racism was awful um it was it started off towards asians then it started off and then it went towards um muslim people and then it went back towards asians during COVID. it swung this way and that way but it's gotten a little bit better over the last few years because the government and social communities schools uh and universities put a lot of effort into racial equality like they put in a lot of effort and you can see there's like ads uh bus window stuff like everywhere it's there's they put a lot of effort into no racial discrimination and it's slowly changing kids are not as racist these days um, i've really begun to notice that like uh my younger sister goes to and like a private school which is historically all white all white people um and i went to the same as well and she's had a really good experience they have accepted her taken her as part of uh, their community, which did not happen to me when I was in the same situation. So it's good to see that things are changing, um, but they can definitely change more. Did your parents address that issue when you are getting bullied over your race? Like, you no. Know, so was your mom Chinese or dad Chinese? My mother's Portuguese. My father's Chinese. I never told them anything. Oh, no. I have always been well i say always but like i've always historically been the person to keep everything to myself so it's the way in which you're raised in asian culture as you would know it's that as a man you don't go around sobbing about things right you don't do that uh it's something i've always learned from a young age and to this day you can see like i can talk about it and i'm quite vulnerable but that's because it has no effect on me my psychology it's happened but growing up i was always taught that you know if you've got issues you know you don't you don't talk about it as a boy you don't talk about it you take it on board i never told my parents that i was getting bullied 
I, I never told them until I actually finished school. <laughs> and that was in 20, 2012. I, ne I never said anything. I always pretended like all was good. And then my home life was difficult, but I go to school and put a smile on my face too. So I've been doing that for years. So you can imagine all of this pain and suffering in my mind was just in my mind. I couldn't tell anyone. Uh, it was all just with me. And it took me a long time to to learn to open up and not keep it all to myself. What did your parents do when you finally combine it? It was pretty tough, pretty tough conversation. There were a couple of tears, you know, a couple of emotional things about that's what it is, you know. It, it, their conversation, it was already past the fact at that point, so I, I'm not the type of person to harp upon it and make that problem. Um, I just said it, shed a few tears. We talked about it for a little bit, and then that was it. Wow. And a lot of things, I, Jeff, I really appreciate you speaking up and speaking about this issues because I've had some men um, who came to my podcast and then had shared some issues. You know, your boy, especially in America, if you're black, male, like tough and that, or the street would eat you up and you need to hide your tears and then therefore like people suffer more in the mental health issues and I think that boy or girl or whatever the race think I think that's like really tough when you have that notion around you and especially well you're young but my case was I was in 80s that nobody talked about sexual abuse, nobody talked about domestic violence, like it was just like nobody believed it. Nobody believed that it existed. And I remember there's a TV program that had elements of sexual abuse in an autistic character. And I remember when I was in high school, like getting a message from my friend and then, oh my gosh, I remember you telling me that when you were in the middle school. So I'm like, yeah, I was telling the truth. I wasn't lying. And it's just very interesting how it was taboo to talk about these things. But then the social media, like you were saying about the advertisement or the education, when they kind of shift, then people are starting to feel a little bit more comfortable talking about these issues. But it sounds like Australia is taking that kind of initiative and understanding and then glad to hear that there was some tangible things that you can, you know, feel. Australia really has to because the majority of our workforce is not Australian. Uh, like before COVID, majority of the apprentices, trades, uh, like, you know, F&B, hospitality, you name it. It was all for migrants that were here on a visa. And then when COVID happened, uh, they all got kicked out of the country because the Australian government removed them, deported them, right? Because we only wanted to, they only wanted to keep um, citizens here. So our economy suffered greatly because there was no one to work any jobs anymore. And then now COVID's ended, they're making all these different deals to bring uh, the migrants back to fill up the jobs. But this is one of the reasons why Australia really does promote multiculturalism because our entire country runs on migrant work, you know, overseas workers. They're very important to our economy. 
Um, Australia is a small country. You know, we we only have about 25 million, probably even less than that, to be honest. And that's the Singapore has more people than us. You know, things like that. It's it's insane. Tokyo has more people than Australia. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so this is this is where so many different sources from around the world help us. And racism cannot be acceptable because how can we bring people here to work and you know boost the economy and make society better if we're treating them any different? And that's not just to say for that purpose, but racism in itself is no room in this country or any country because it just creates chaos and discordance between people. It creates unnecessary conflict that we could be using to make society better. It makes no sense to continue in these, you know, old school ideologies that have no grounding as we try to make a better world. Wow. Very interesting. What is kind of the ad that you see, you say like in the public places, like no racism or no like those words are welcome or something? Like what what is the impactful thing that you see in public? It's sort of like just promoting multiculturalism, showing that even though someone looks different to you, it doesn't mean that they are different from you. It just means that they look different. They're still human. We should still accept them. And that everyone can get along. It's, I mean, like, these are just ads and, you know, things like that. But it's more about sentiment that changes, right? Because the people that are coming up and especially growing up over the last 20 years have seen a radical shift in the world. We're not living in a world anymore where our information source comes from the media. We live in a world where our information source comes from social media, where I can sit on TikTok and see injustice around the world. Or I can sit on Facebook or Instagram. And if you're a self-aware person and you have a phone, and you're looking on it and you're seeing people being victimized or you're seeing things like racism or you're seeing things where they're promoting messages about acceptance, it's going to filter into your consciousness that, hang on, there's something wrong with me behaving in this manner. There's something incorrect about this. And then slowly you change because social media, you know, we look at it as a tool for negativity and perhaps it might be in some cases, but it's also a tool for good because it helps inform people of the things they should know about. And you have it with you at all times. And I think that's really how it's been changing because when you see social media ads, when you see content created, you know, sometimes there's content on TikTok where you might see someone being picked on for being a certain race and you think, hey, that's wrong. And then you think, I don't want to do that. Or you might see an ad or you might see a post we put up about acceptance. It changes the way which you think about things. And slowly our brains and our beliefs change. And that's why it's not been overnight, but it has changed since social media. Very interesting, Jeff. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And I never really thought about it. Because you know, obviously, Mark Zuckerberg was not born when I was born. And, you know, there's no Facebook, no internet whatsoever. So you're right, the media was the only thing, the only source, and then they can control propaganda and then that biases so easily. And then, especially in Japan, we only have maybe six major channels. So, like, say, you know, when we FIFA, the World Cup happened, the old channel were all about soccer and nothing else was available when you go on your phone and you can see all sorts of information as well so you're so right about that I and mean, i really appreciate you bringing it up and i think it's very important um, to talk about this so let's shift our conversation to the tools that you use to overcome this adversity especially your addiction um bullying and stuff so i love this part of the podcast jeff because all of the guests that came to a given university, they had shared so many different unique tools that they used to tackle these challenges that they faced. And 
oftentimes people will say, oh, Julie, just go see a counselor, or go find a therapist or something, but that's not just a cure, it's a bandage. So I really appreciate you sharing that. So what do you think the best tool that you especially came out of the addiction that worked for you? Right, so to explain the tool, I have to explain how I came out of addiction. Or Do you have that as a later question or are you happy for me to explain that now? Yeah, of course, please do. Please go ahead. Gotcha. So I'll start off with the tool. The tool is to find meaning in your life. And this is not cliche. It's that without meaning in your life, you're naturally going to gravitate towards things that prolong suffering. Here's how it changed for me. In the middle of the year 2020, heavy days of COVID, lockdown, I was forced to confront myself. I was a 24-year-old man who was working a good job in clinical research as a project manager, but I had nothing going on for me. I was showing up to work every day, doing my business, but I was creating nothing and I was not fulfilling my potential. My life was meaningless. And the only way I could deal with it, because, you know, in the past, before lockdowns, you could always run away and see friends. Now you're just forced to sit at home by yourself, smoking weed or drinking and realizing how sad and pathetic your life actually is. And that's exactly how I felt. And I realized something had to change. There was a big promotion coming up at work for me. I took that promotion, but I realized that I'm going to use this as leverage to change myself because now I'm responsible for a lot. So for a bit of context, I was in charge of many global pharmaceutical projects, coordinating with different countries like America, the UK, etc. So for me to sit there and be this person in work and then come home and be a fool wasn't acceptable to me anymore. I tried to quit for many years, but this was a strong reason. So I had a book that I found coincidentally. I had a book I bought five years before that point when I was a young man. It was called The 50th Law. The 50th Law is the story of how 50 Cent never abused drugs or alcohol. He may sell drugs, he may sell alcohol, but he never touched it because he realized the only way to fulfill your potential in life is to be sober. It blew my mind. I never realized that you could be, I know this sounds so stupid, but before that point in time, I never even considered a life of being sober. I never thought it would be necessary. Anyways, so I decided to dedicate the next six months of my life to getting clean. I tried to quit everything at once. It went horribly and I fell into a really bad state of panic and anxiety. So I thought, okay, I better do this bit by bit by bit. So I stopped the drugs and then I stopped the drinking and then I stopped the smoking. And it took me a long time to do that. It took me around about six months and the smoking prolonged for a little bit longer. In the six months period, I made my life as difficult as you can possibly imagine with the most tight routine. Every day I did the same thing. I went to work, I came home, I cooked food, I went to the gym and I did this five days a week. I had no social life. I lost contact with a lot of friends that were, you know, in the circles that I was in before. And I spent all of my time in this tunnel vision of just trying to heal myself. So I went and trained every day. And on the weekends, I would spend time on my own reading or trying to improve my life. After six months of this, I realized that I wanted to share the things that I had learned with the world. I created an Instagram page called Your Daily Purpose. Now, I'm big on purpose because for my entire life, I'd always try to find purpose and meaning to it, but I never could. So I created this page called Your Daily Purpose. It still exists today. You can look it up. Um, And it grew very quickly to about 3,000 followers in about six months. And the content I used to put out was about quotes from ancient philosophers that I would write about and give them my spin on how you could find meaning from this, how you could learn from this to improve your life. People were flocking to the page and, you know, they were contacting me, DMing me. And for the first time in my life, I had a sense of meaning because people were actually asking me questions. People were actually caring about the things that I said. And before that point in time, I know I was in charge of things at work. 
I never felt like it meant anything because it always suited a company or a corporation. But this was impacting people's lives. And it made me feel like I wasn't such a piece of shit. Sorry for the language, but that's how I used to feel about myself. And moving on even further, I decided to take a leap of faith. Now, here's the tool that I used. The tool that I used throughout all of this is to make my life have a sense of structure, number one, and have a sense of controlled suffering. See, suffering is a very important thing in life because suffering that is beyond our control is unbearable. For example, if you're out in the really hot sun and you don't have any clothes on, you're going to get burnt, right? Because that's something you can't control if you didn't take clothes. But hang on, if you put on sunscreen, then it becomes a little bit more tolerable. If you wear clothes, you wear a hat. That might be a bad example, but if you can control the amount of suffering in your life towards a purpose, this is called striving. Striving is what creates meaning. So when I started Your Daily Purpose and I started to formulate what I wanted to do with my life, I realized that what I really enjoyed doing was helping people discover their purpose. I, people were coming to me and it always been something even when I was younger throughout life. People always come to me and say, hey, Jeff, what should I do with this decision? I could use your advice. I don't know why it's always been the way. It's just always been that way. So that's why I've always found myself in leadership positions. Now, as we move through this process, I decided to quit my job and move to Melbourne on a whim right? So I literally live in Perth and I went across the country and I arrived in Melbourne on the day of a lockdown that lasted for about six months. It was awful. So I quit my job, left all my full-time work, you know, you can imagine security, safety, whatever, literally packed up my stuff, found a place to live with a guy from Facebook, you know, and I went to live there and I just started living there. And it was the most random thing ever. I said goodbye to all my friends. I said, I was done. I'm going forever. And because I arrived in a lockdown, Here's where it got tricky. I could not make any connections. I could not make any friends. I only had one choice, which was to work and confront myself. My housemate was not someone that wanted to socialize with me. He was very introverted. So it was just me all the time. And the more that you're alone, the more you discover about yourself. You can't run anymore. There's no distraction. There's no party. There's no bar. There's no coffee. There's nothing. It's just you versus you. And it's ironic, actually, a couple of days ago, I was reading a memoir that I wrote about this experience. And this period of isolation changed me forever. It got me clear upon who I am as a person, and more importantly, the type of person I wish to become. Mind Access Life Coaching, the coaching I do today, kept me going. It was my mission. I work 16 hours a day, every single day during this period of time on Mind Access Life Coaching to build it up and create a service that I could use to help other people. Because I realized, and coming back to the tools, is that to change your life from adversity to where you want to go, first of all, it has to have a sense of meaning. There has to be a reason for you to actually want to change your suffering, right? Because if you're going through you know, bullying, if you're going through drug abuse, if you're going through any kind of difficult thing, that itself is suffering. But it's a sense of prolonged suffering, right? But if you find a sense of meaning to your suffering, all of a sudden it becomes tolerable. For example, if you're trying to sober up from drugs or alcohol like I was, that pain, because it was awful, mind you, it was not easy, was only made tolerable because there was a sense of meaning of who I wanted to become as a person, which allowed me to wake up and say, okay, today's today's hard, but I can do it. I can tolerate it. And every time you tell yourself that, it becomes a little bit easier. First step is meaning. The second step is understanding the importance of striving. Striving for something that's going to build you up and make you better, something that's actually worth your while. And number three, being very clear on the end result, being so clear on how you want it to be. Because when you have these three things, and they're theoretical, they're in your mind, but they completely change the way your mind works. Because now, rather than when you have a hard day, you might reach for a bottle of beer. 
now when you have a hard day, it's like, okay, look, today was a hard day, but this is part of the process. This is part of the process because if today wasn't hard, then I wouldn't be going towards anything, would I? I'd just be in the same spot. So rather than trying to run away from difficulty, now you see difficulty as leverage to help you achieve what you want. So in short, the three tools that I used were meaning, striving, and purpose. And they are theoretical in your head, but they change the way you think, which then you can start to adapt different modalities like in coaching. You might use neurolinguistic programming. You might use meditation. You might use yoga. You might use gymming, exercise, whatever it may be. These are tools, but the first thing you need to lay is the foundation because when you have that, everything in your life will change. But it all starts with the very basic foundations. I hope that wasn't an over you know, explanation upon your question. Well, it's beautiful. So meaning is number one. And the second one is? Striving. Striving. And then the third one is? Purpose. Why are you doing this? Okay. Who do you want to become? So what is your meaning? And what are you just driving me? And then what is your purpose now? And, And who do you want to become? Yes. And then how about you? Like your personal answer to that. Right. Well, I'm going to tell you what it was at that point in time because that point in time is more pivotal and relevant to this conversation. My meaning in life at that point in time was to be able to become sober and understand who I was. My meaning was to be able to help these people that I were helping out on your daily purpose because I realized that I could provide value to this world, that I wasn't worthless. So that gave me a sense of meaning because I was like, okay, like people are actually now dependent on me in a certain way to produce results, to produce something. Number two, striving by going to the gym and training every day, by making sure that my life was tight and knit routine to make sure that I was going towards just becoming so my only goal for six months, believe it or not, for that six months, the only goal I had in my mind was I'm going to become sober. That was it. After I got sober, that's when I had another other goals. Like, for example, I wanted to be a life coach. I wanted to move to Melbourne. I wanted to do better at work, et cetera, things like that. But for those six months, it was just, Jeff, you're just going to get sober. That's your only goal right now. Make it as easy as possible. It wasn't easy, but I tried to make it as easy as possible. Number three, purpose. I had to become very clear on the person I wanted to become and what I wanted to be in this world, right? And I don't mean what I do as in a vocation, as in like a job, but I mean in terms of who I wanted to be for other people. Do I want to be a man of integrity and character? Do I want to be a man who can stand up for other people and for himself? Do I want to be a man who has the discipline to be able to control himself and be able to do positive things in this world? Or do I want to be someone that falls into pleasure and has no purpose? Do I want to be meaningless? Do I want to be angry and frustrated? These are all things that I had to really consider, Jury, and I had to get very clear on the person I wanted to be. And the person that I speak to you today is that same person that I had to create two years ago of who I wanted to be at that point in time. Because two years ago, if I spoke to you, there is no way in hell that I'd be able to tell you all these things about my past. With a straight face and with a smile, I'd be sitting here in tears probably, right? So this is where I had to be very clear on the person I wanted to be because then I had somewhere to at least anchor myself, to keep striving, to keep going. Well, thank you so much for that, Jeff. Now, two years um, sober being sober and it's so interesting about the 50 cents i've never heard of that mm-hmm. um it it's just in incredibly um powerful that you can't have the maximum potential if you're not sober and 
it's just really powerful. I think it's powerful. And anybody who has been suffering or had suffered um, with any type of types of addiction, I feel that there was a cause, root cause to the addiction. And when you are an addict, you don't even know that you're addicted. And then when you come out of it, you just have this like sense of what the hell was I doing to myself? And then now you are clear. And then now that I think the potential part comes to you when you're sober, that you have this maximum potential. How do you feel right now being sober and then having this purpose and meaning? feels pretty good. <laughs> feels good to have clarity in my thoughts and actually have memories. Um, and I, I mean like actual like vivid memories that I can recall in the last two years versus the past two, eight years before that where things were a blur really. I don't remember much. Um, you know, it feels good to be able to have like meaningful relationships and friendships with people where I can actually talk about things that are relevant and not be moody or upset. It feels really good to coach clients like, you know, I've been a coach for a year and a half now and it has been awesome, you know, it has been awesome. And I actually got all the timeline wrong. I got sober two and a half years ago um, and I went to Melbourne a year and a half ago. I keep forgetting that it's already the end of 2022, believe it or not. Um, but so I've been a coach for a year and a half and I've coached over 50 clients. It has been awesome. I love working with people. It gives me a sense of purpose and meaning. So where I'm at today, I'm really happy about it. I'm happy with the fact that I don't need substances to make me happy. Like I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do drugs. I go to the gym every day if that's a drug, but you know, my life has purpose. I don't feel tired. I don't feel moody. I don't feel upset. And I feel like I'm actually making a difference and life is pretty good. <laughs> so that's, that's what happens when you become sober is that you learn to, you learn to improve your life in ways that actually matter and are meaningful. Jeff, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story because this, again, is an epidemic and people don't talk about this enough and then people don't really come out sometimes to the other side of the addiction and they don't even have the clarity and the reason and the meaning and then really even understand the cause of it. Just to share it with you, I didn't even know that I was so addicted to sex and then toxic relationship. And some of my friends said, you should stop dating, you should stop doing that. And then I didn't know because of the child sex abuse and then the forced um, stimulation to my bodies between the age four to 13. And that led to very unhealthy wiring in my mind, which I didn't even understand that I had that. And then now you told me about being a sober and then being a max, maximum potential. And I didn't have that clarity until like recent, I would say this year really, um, or last year. And it's just so weird that like you don't even know, like when you're addicted to something so powerful. And then, um, I just wanted to share that with you and I feel really good because I'm seeing more of sign of not just the addiction part of it, but then being able to have boundaries. And then like you said, 
like you cut out all these um, negative relationships and then people who are in this kind of toxic relationships that brings you more toxics to your life, toxic lifestyle or in, you know, whatever. Then, but the first sign is for you to understand the self-respect and then sobriety that you said, and then say no to people and then being very pre prestigious and then being maximum potential, like you said, I think it's so important. I absolutely agree. So when you say no to other people, you're not saying no to other people. You're saying no to investing yourself in something that doesn't serve you. See, a lot of times when we look at no in society, we look at it so personal. It's like, oh, that person said no to me. They must dislike me. It's like, no, that's not the case. It's that if I say no to you, it's so that I can say yes to myself in a way that's going to serve me. Because if I keep saying yes to drinking or I keep saying yes to smoking weed or popping pills, then I just keep saying no to myself. And why would I want to keep doing that if it's my life? And we, we live in a very yes culture where it's almost stigma to say no to someone else. But if, if you want to reach a certain platform in your life where you can actually invest a lot in yourself, saying no is going to be your best friend. Not all the time, but saying no to things that no longer serve you. And it's very important. 100% agreed. Thank you so much. So Jeff, my last question is a gift that came from your adversity. So how would you explain a gift that came from your adversity? The greatest gift that I have gained from my adversity is an understanding on how important the time that we have on this planet really is. See, when you go through a tunnel of about eight years where you don't remember much, um, where you kind of just did everything possible to run away from existing, it makes you feel like you've lost time. And the truth is I have lost time but not in a way that's negative because I look at it as me gaining time, right? Because that eight years has set me up so well for the rest of my life in terms of mindset, in terms of how I want to spend it. I know what it's like to live a life that is full of meaningless suffering, really. But now I know how to live a life that is full of something that's important, of meaning and striving and purpose. And it's vastly different. So the greatest gift is the wisdom to differentiate between how you want your life to actually be. And if I were to share it in terms of anyone that's listening, is that adversity does not exist to bring you down. Adversity exists to make you stronger. You can think of it as God, a higher power, whatever it is you would like to call it. But they give you challenges in life to help you become stronger for some reason. And you get to pick the reason. It's your choice. But this strength is important. And it all comes from you being able to overcome adversity. So if anyone is going through adversity, consider this. Consider using it as leverage for your own growth, for your own strength, rather than letting it bring you down. That is the greatest gift that I have gained from adversity. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for coming to A Gift from Adversity and sharing your life story with us. Thank you for having me, Drew. It's been awesome, man. You know, we've had an excellent conversation. I loved it. Great. And then thank you again for our audience and listeners. And we have more guests coming in. And really, this is a gift for you. And then for our next generation to normalize these difficult conversations and then giving the tools and an awareness so that people won't suffer much. So I hope that message 
will come across. And thank you again for sharing the time with us.